I can picture the boys over there, making plenty of noise over there. Welcome to episode 12 of Fred Talks, Judge Advocates in the United States during World War I. Our discussion today is based on chapter 2 of Fred's great book, Judge Advocates in the Great War, 1917 through 1922. And I'm not just saying that because it has pictures in it. Mr. Bork, where did you get all of those photos in the book? The, uh, most of the photographs were taken by Signal Corps photographers who were over in uh, France in World War One, taking photographs. So they're all official photos. Uh, same with some of those who were in, uh, in the chapters about the United States. The National Archives and Records Administration Office facilities in College Park, Maryland, has a still photo collection of 8 to 10 million black and white pictures. Many of these are Signal Corps photos, and that's where most of these come from. And there is actually an index that was created in uh, the 1920s that where you can find judge advocates in photographs looking at the list. So that's where I'm able to get the picture. No kidding. And has that collection been digitized? No, it is not. Uh, and it's certainly something that people would like to do, but 8 million photos, digitizing, going to cost a lot of money and take a lot of time. Well, in the meantime, they can look at some of them in your book, which I'll remind our listeners, uh, they can find the ebook or PDF version of the book in a link in the episode description. As I stated previously, we are today talking about Chapter 2, Judge Advocates in the United States during World War I. You start out Chapter 2 with the startling figure that there were only 17 uniformed lawyers in the JAG department when the U.S. entered the war. How did the JAG department first attempt to meet the need of the rapidly expanding army? So before I answer that, uh, Captain Hood, the JAG department, as it was then known, recognized that when General Pershing and his soldiers got to Europe, it wasn't going to be possible for them to get legal advice from the War Department in Washington, D.C. So for the first time in history, there was a recognition that a lot of lawyers, military lawyers, judge advocates, were going to have to go overseas. So initially, only 17 lawyers in the department in 1916, and uh, once the U.S. Uh, declares war, April 1917, a few months later in June, the War Department announces that we are going to, we're going to have 20 lawyers who will be directly commissioned as majors in the JAG Department. And in this era, there was no one below the rank of major in the JAG Department. You had a judge advocate general who was a brigadier general. You had some assistant judge advocates general who were colonels. You had a handful of lieutenant colonels, and the rest were majors. So the department said, well, uh, we need 20 more majors. And the quality of lawyers who applied for these field grade commissions was just phenomenal. Felix Frankfurter later serves as a justice on the Supreme Court. He's one of the applicants. He's accepted. He's a law school professor. Uh, Wigmore, who's familiar to every lawyer today as uh, the author of the famous Wigmore's On Evidence book, uh, he applies. He's in the JAG department. A former Secretary of War by the name of uh, uh, Stimson, 
he applies. And uh, there are a number of really, really outstanding uh, lawyers, including, some of you will be familiar, Joshua Reuben Clark, uh, after whom a law school is named at Brigham Young. That's right, my alma mater. Thank you. So really, really top drawer people applied. I'm not sure exactly why this is. The quality, though, of lawyers who wanted to serve was just phenomenal. And it could be because we really had not faced this sort of a conflict since the Civil War. And there seems to be an outpouring of a patriotism or a desire to serve. So initially, hey, we've got 17, we need 20 more. But almost immediately, the JAG department realizes that that's not enough. And so we then put out a call, get authorization to have temporary captains and lieutenants, and the result is overwhelming. About 5,000 lawyers in America applied to be judge advocates. Very competitive because we only need about 400. So really tough to get a commission. And then the question is, well, where are they going to serve? Many of them do serve in Washington, D.C. at the War Department. Remember, this is before the days of the Pentagon, so most of them are over in the old executive office building right by the White House. But then there are a lot of judge advocates who go to Europe to serve in the 20-plus divisions that are there. And there's at least one or two judge advocates also in the divisions that are still stateside. In total, about 425, 430 lawyers in uniform. Well, now that we've plussed up the, the JAG department, what were all these lawyers doing? Would we recognize the kind of work that uh, they were doing today? Yes, there's a lot of military justice, certainly much more than, than we have today. I believe in 1917, the Army does about 8,000 courts-martial, but by 1918, 20,000 courts-martial. Compare that today to today, where the Army's trying, start to finish, about 550 courts-martial. But you should remember, it's a big difference back in this era because judge advocates generally are not involved at any level of courts martial, at least trials. They're not prosecutors. They're not defense counsel. There's no such thing as a military judge. Courts martial, even general courts martial, are non-lawyer institutions. So what are judge advocates doing? They're reviewing records of trial. And if you have 20,000 cases that you've tried in 1918, most of your work, the bulk of your work, is going to be reviewing these records of trial and then making a recommendation to the convening authority on what action he should take. Administrative law questions are certainly out there. Some legal assistance. This is, in fact, the era when the Soldiers and Sailors Civil Relief Act is first established, created. Today, the Service Members Civil Relief Act. So there is some legal assistance there that judge advocates are doing. If you're over in uh, Europe, you're certainly doing some work with prisoners of war. And uh, I think contract and fiscal law as well, advising commanders. So the only difference would be there's really no such thing as operational law. 
and judge advocates are not involved in advising commanders in any way on the lawfulness of military operations. Now, I know the question is, why not? Well, because they just weren't. No one asked for a legal opinion or legal advice before launching an assault or targeting a structure. It's not to say that the Hague and Geneva Conventions, uh, well, the Geneva Conventions are not out there. Hague 1907 is out there and Hague 1899, but this is all just something that commanders make the decision on, lawyers really not involved. I guess we could talk about, and we probably should, talk about what's going on in Washington, D.C., and this is significant. The Army has decided that it needs, and Congress approves, approves a wartime conscription where up to three million Americans are drafted. Who's going to run this Selective Service Act? The Judge Advocate General of the Army, uh, Bert Crowder, a distinguished uh, jurist, he takes a leave of absence from his position as Judge Advocate General, hands the reins over to his deputy, uh, Brigadier General uh, Sam Ansel, and Crowder then supervises, runs, organizes the Selective Service Act that brings in these three million Americans. So it's a phenomenal event because, you know, all this is being done with a pencil and paper. Uh, the Secretary of War, Newton Baker, uh, draws uh, draft numbers out of a glass uh, bowl. Uh, you've certainly seen pictures of this, and even during the Vietnam War, it was the same thing. But Crowder, who's the Judge Advocate General, uh, he's running the Selective Service Act as the Provost Marshal General of the Army. And that's a really, really big deal. Thank you for that rundown of what Judge Advocates are doing stateside during the Great War. In future episodes, we'll talk a little bit more about military justice at that time, the Houston riot trial. Let's land the plane with this question, Mr. Bork. Currently, there's about 2,000 Judge Advocates in the Army. Most of our discussion and operational law has, has shifted to large-scale combat operations. Based on what you said and lessons from World War I, do you think the JAG Corps would need to increase its number like the JAG Department did in 1917, were we to enter a period of prolonged large-scale combat operations? Well, I think the honest answer is probably based on the size of the Army today, 1,850 active-duty judge advocates seems to meet the needs of commanders. If the Army were to expand with many more divisions, perhaps. But I think the way we have the Army structured now with three judge advocates in a deployed brigade combat team, a BCT, uh, and seven paralegals probably meets the need. So I guess I don't know, but I would say it all depends on the Army's expansion and ultimately what commanders want. There's no question that the Judge Advocate General's Corps today sees that we're here to enhance mission success. What can we do as judge advocates, legal administrators, paralegals, to help commanders achieve mission success? Right. We're the supporting element, they're the supported element, and we're there to support the regionally engaged Army, like the mission statement says. Thank you, Mr. Bork. If you're interested in learning more about the JAG Corps joining its ranks, please visit www.goarmy.com and type in Judge Advocate into the search menu. This has been a reminder of the patriotism and professionalism of the legal profession during the Great War. We need those kinds of lawyers 
to ensure the legitimacy of our practice, the legality of our system, and the lethality of our fighting forces. In episode 13, we'll explore chapter three of Judge Advocates in the Great War, Judge Advocates in the American Expeditionary Forces. Advocates in the Great War.